0: Okay, everybody, welcome back and thank you so much for being here for this very final session for the Fiduciary Investors Symposium. It's my pleasure to step in for Fiona Reynolds, um, the CEO of Connexus, to have this fireside chat with Mike Henry. Uh, Mike is the Chief Executive Officer of BHP, the world's largest diversified resources company by market capitalisation. He has over 30 years' global experience in the resources industry, including both mining and in oil and gas. He's been with BHP since 2003, a member of the executive leadership team since 2011, and has held leadership roles spanning operational, commercial, and technical. Prior to being appointed CEO in January 2020, Mike led BHP's minerals businesses in Australia. He's focused on creating exceptional value for shareholders and society through safely and sustainably meeting the world's growing need for commodities that are essential to improving economic well-being of people globally and to enabling the world's decarbonisation challenge. And that is what we're going to be talking about today. Welcome to you, Mike. Thank you so much for joining us. We know you have a very busy schedule, so thank you for making the time to speak to us today. As a child, I... Thank you for having me. Nice to see you, Mike. Um, As a child, I actually grew up in Wyala, so BHP played a big role in my history, so it's a personal thrill to be speaking with you today. We're going to start off this conversation um, with just some opening remarks by yourself about BHP's role in the energy transition. So can you just give a quick overview of BHP's activities in mine commodities and then we'll go into some more specific questions.
1: Sure. So again, thank you for having me here today. Um, I might start with a bit of context around, around mining. Um, and and mine resources, uh, as I'm sure everybody in the room is aware, the global economy um, is powered by um, the, the, the things that BHP produces and other other mine resources and oil and gas. Uh, and w- w- sometime, one of the things that sometimes gets missed is that the outlook for the demand for mine commodities is only getting stronger. So if we think about the world today, you've got about 1.3 billion people of, of 8 billion people on the planet who are in developed economies. You've got all the rest of the people out there who aren't living in developed economies aspiring to the same standards of living. Um, and by 2050, the expectation is that about five, uh, 3.5 of, of uh, or 5.5 of 10 billion people will be living in developed economies. So overall 3.5 times increase in the number of people who are going to be um, enjoying the standard of living that we all, uh, we all enjoy. That has certain implications associated with it in terms of demand for um, copper, for nickel, and for other uh, commodities, as well as for for food. And I'll come back to that in a second. In addition to that, the act of decarbonization is a surprisingly metals-intensive effort. So the long and the short of it is that in order for the world to hit a uh, 1.5-degree centigrade uh, um, uh, ambition, it's going to require about three times, as, or two times as much copper and four times as much nickel over the next 30 years. Over the past 30 years, and surprisingly, two times as much steel, which means more iron ore and more metallurgical coal over that period as, as, as well. To compound the challenge for the world, those or that supply is going to have to come from mines that are lower grade, smaller, in tougher jurisdictions, and so if left unchecked the incremental mining activity that the world is going to need to undertake um, has the potential to lead to 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 unacceptable outcomes by way of of poor water steward or impact on on water resources impact on biodiversity communities and so on and so forth um and the, and, and the, hence the challenge for all of us be it those of us in directly in industry or for capital markets is to ensure that the system is working in a way that ensures that the world's needs for um, ongoing, or need need for for metals um, and other resources is met in the most sustainable way possible. So is being, is being uh, met by companies that set and uphold very high standards and continue to improve them. Um, and for that to take place, um, whilst I think we've come so far over recent decades in terms of raising awareness around some of these challenges and making the system work more effectively, it is still not a system that's working the way that the world needs it to uh, to work, and we can talk through um, that a little bit further. But I do think that you know there's there's a we're at a point in time where industry, uh, capital markets, um, and other actors need to lock arms to figure out how we can go about accelerating um, the 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 uh, efforts to improve um, ESG standards and governance. And in doing so, ensure that the world's need for resources is met in an efficient way and a way that minimizes the downside impacts that might otherwise arise on other aspects of ESG than, 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 than just uh, climate.
0: So, you talk about BHP being one of the best ESG credentialed mining companies in the world. And, and you're not here just talking about the type of commodities you produce. And, of course, you, know, you, you mentioned copper and nickel as being important to the energy transition but also how they are produced can you talk a little bit about that in an ESG context
1: so it's definitely the how um, is is so critically important and i'll start by saying that whilst you know we do have a, a track record of of taking a leadership stand on matters related to ESg and I'd like to think that we you know we've we've um, made some some big green roads over recent years we're not complacent this is an area where our own understanding of of um, of uh impacts on the environment and and so on as well as societal expectations continue to evolve so we're always seeking to to raise those standards um both within bhp but also across uh, industry now some examples of of the how and i think it's important to you know to move away from just rhetoric and to some specific examples i you know i i think our chilean um, copper businesses is is a great example um only if Few years ago, let's say five seven years ago, um, copper operations in Chile were being powered by coal fired power. Um, as many people in the room would know, copper um, mining and processing is a pretty um, electricity hungry uh, activity, uh, and that electricity was coming from coal fired power in in Chile. Um, well before there was a well there was there was no push to do do this on the part of uh, of, of shareholders, and certainly no requirements in Chile. We looked forward, and we said in the coming decades, um, decarbonization is, of of our operations is going to become increasingly important. Recognizing that power uh, makes up, you know, approximately forty percent of the of the scope one and scope two emissions that we have in 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 BHP, we elected to go early, and we um, initially stimulated a um, gas fired peaking plant to replace some of our pretty much all of our coal fired power in Chile. And within a few years, we had bridged from that gas-fired peaking plant, which gives kind of the the, um, uh, stability to the grid, to full renewables. So within the next year or two, we will have fully moved from all coal-fired power a few years ago to all renewable power for our Chilean copper operations. That will reduce BHP's overall scope one and scope two footprint by about 15%. Uh, I would also note that in parallel with that, we spent about four to five billion US dollars in moving to fully desalinated water in Chile as well. And again, no requirement to, un, under uh, regulations in Chile at the time. This is something where we looked a decade into the future and said, this is the right thing to do. And we started investing in it. And thankfully, that was, we, we, we did that because now this has come in, you know be, become a more prominent issue um, in the, the, the public eye there. One other example I would give, Amanda, is on um, shipping. So recognizing the big uh, footprint that BHP has in, in uh, bulk ocean freight globally and shipping contributes about 2% of the world's emissions, likely to go higher if left uh, uh, unchecked, um, we've sought to harness our purchasing power through um, working with uh, ship owners to stand up the world's first LNG-fueled bulk carrier of a, of a, of a certain class. Uh, that's about thirty percent lower emissions than uh, than than existing fleet uh, which uses uh, bunkers um and we are going to make you know a strong push towards reducing um emissions in the shipping of our products. so this is uh, scope three emissions for us um through uh, the way that we we harness our purchasing power and the way that we collaborate with um ship owners.
0: We'll come to Scope Three emissions in in a moment, Mike, because I think that there's a lot in that. But um, you've also set a whole bunch of targets around your health, safety, environment, and community, which were set back in 2018, and some of those target deadlines are, are fast approaching June 30, um, 2022. How are you faring against those targets? Are you going to meet those June 30 deadlines on those um, on those targets and the and longer term goals?
1: So, if there's one thing that um yeah, I'd like to think that BHP is pretty good at it. If we, if we set a target and turn our minds to it, um, we're uh, pretty good at, 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 at hitting those targets. So certainly, and I don't want to get ahead of our kind of public reporting, but yes, well on track for the targets that we've set out. And it does raise the, the point of the importance of targets or goals in, in, in some cases. Now, there is a certain philosophy that BHP adopts around these, which is that when we set out a target, it's not pie-in-the-sky stuff. This is well thought through. Um, we've got uh, we we understand what's going to be required by way of resourcing. We always, don't always have all of the solutions, but we have a sufficient level of confidence to be able to put the target out there. Um, and then we are you know pretty disciplined about how we go about executing against that target. And the thinking there is that absent that, you know, the more that we or other companies are allowed to put a target out few years pass, and we don't achieve the target, and we we put that down to, you know, whatever external challenges. Um, I think that erodes credibility. And and, and and so we want to make sure that whatever we put out there, shareholders and other um, um, stakeholders can have a high degree of confidence that BHP will achieve the targets that it's, it's, it's set out. And we'll talk a little bit about what that implies then when in, the, in the scope three space and the difference between goals and targets, um, perhaps a little bit later.
0: So, Mike, you recently demerged or sold your petroleum business um, to Woodside. I want to talk about this in the context of divestment. Um, and, you know, that's, that, that was good for your sustainability footprint, if you like, but it hasn't necessarily solved the overall problem in the real economy of, um, of, of that business. So, you know, how would you frame that in terms of uh, divestment, you know, in terms of decarbonisation Perspective across the economy.
1: So, shareholders should give us no credit from a um, emissions footprint perspective for having divested um, our petroleum business, and and that that wasn't the intent behind the divestment. We've always been very clear that companies should not claim credit for a reduced um, emissions footprint as a result of divestment of assets, because all you're doing is shifting from kind of one uh, owner to to another owner there's been no net savings in terms of, of, of global emissions. For us, this was all about kind of financial risk and returns. We knew that in due course, um, because we are so committed to achieving the, the aims of, of the Paris Accord, in due course, oil and gas is going to become a less attractive um, sector to be in or, or, or business to be in by, by way of, of returns and risk. So it was simply a matter of, of timing. It was a pretty capital-hungry business. I didn't want to see us continuing to deploy capital into a business that over the long term, we didn't see as being, you know, the, the, a, a um, core business to, to BHP. Um, and the, the and, and, hence in looking at the, the various means of addressing that, um, the approach that we landed upon was spinning the oil and gas business out. Uh, we were very deliberate about choosing potential counterparties on this, who we believed upheld good um, ESG standards, who believed in, in, in the world's need to address uh, climate change and through bringing our petroleum business together with Woodside to create a new Woodside, we end up creating a more resilient business that I believe is going to be better able to fund um, the energy transition for, uh, in this case, Woodside shareholders and any BHP shareholders who have elected to, to hang on to shares in the new, new company, which um, is, is is the majority of shareholders. Um, so this new company, because it's, it's larger, more resilient, is going to be better able to fund everything that Woodside has committed to by way of investments in, um, you know, business activities associated with the energy uh, transition.
0: So minerals and metals that are vital for clean energy have relatively high or higher emissions. And you mentioned long-term and short-term kind of timeframes. What are the... What's, what's the plan for the sort of shorter-term... Uh, strategies to to reduce these emissions, um, ov- obviously over the long term, that's a that's a different proposition. But in the short term, um, you know, w- what are you doing to to reduce those?
1: So, so um, by way of background, BHP has a has a uh, target in place for a thirty percent reduction by twenty thirty relative to twenty twenty baseline, and net zero by twenty fifty. Uh, Of our scope one and scope two emissions, about 40% comes from diesel um, being used in haul trucks, uh, for example, 40% from power, and 20% are hard to abate emissions, things like fugitive uh, methane from from coal mining operations and so on. Um, The easiest early win is in power. So we've moved to very significant, well, I mentioned the Chilean example earlier. We've done similar things in Australia. We aren't fully on to to renewable power yet, but well on track on that. generally not through building our own solar and wind farms, but rather contracting with uh, others has been the bulk of our activity so far. Um, and we've got further to go on that front. <clears throat> We're also working with others to um, stimulate the development of the technologies that will allow us to remove diesel from our operating sites. So these, these will be things like um, uh, uh, trolley assist trucks. So these big trucks that we drive around on sites to move dirt and, and, and material currently run on diesel. We'll look to um, augment the 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 um, those trucks by putting in place a, a, tr- a kind of an overhead uh, tram system, which will allow the trucks to move on electric power. Or I know some of our industry peers are focused on hydrogen to to to, to move the trucks. We may ultimately look at removing trucks altogether and and moving to in pit crushing and conveying. But again, that uses renewable power. Um, and so there's a lot of different um, technologies that we're looking at. We have to just like I mentioned in in shipping, where because we're a big player in the sector, we can harness our buying power to um, accelerate technological or development of the of the necessary technologies. It's the same when it comes to big equipment. So we're working with the like likes of Caterpillar, Komatsu. We've even um, drawn in our industry peers like Rio Tinto and Valley, and so on. It's something called the Charge on Charge on Challenge, which is a a um, competition for. Um, for uh, um, equipment and technology providers to come up with the next big thing that will allow us to achieve these uh, uh, these ambitions.
0: How uh, so? The the room, this audience, Mike, is is large institutional investors uh, in Australia, both on the asset owner side, you know, some of the country's largest super funds, as well as on the funds management side, all of whom I'm sure are your shareholders. How are institutional investors generally reacting to your? Uh, Net zero plans, your ESG credentials, and and uh, you know how are you engaging with them to communicate effectively around that?
1: Um, so first of all, our um, shareholders have been very generous with their time and 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 their feedback. So um, it's been encouraging to see the openness of of shareholders to engage and work through what can be some very complex um, uh, issues. Um, we put forward a climate transition action plan, I believe we were the first or at least one of the first uh, uh, major Australian corporates uh, to do so and that was at our annual general meeting last year, 85 or 86% support so uh, strong support for, for what we're trying to achieve. Um, having said that, of course, through that process, um, you know, we were listening carefully for the uh, feedback and I think you know, we, we we set out that we were going to carry forward our our uh, strategy once every three years for an advisory um, uh, vote. There was feedback from some that they'd like to see that more frequently, but the bulk of of shareholders were supportive of the three-year cadence. Broadly, shareholders were supportive of us having a climate transition action plan and an advisory vote on it. There was a a cohort, and it, and it was a small, certainly the minority, but but not not um insignificant of shareholders who were of the view that it wasn't something that we should be bringing forward to to shareholders because um i think they felt that we were trying to place it all onto the backs of of shareholders rather than take accountability for it ourselves which of course couldn't be further from the truth so we we remain committed to bringing forward this with a regular cadence and of course reporting on progress every every year i think the other area of um, discussion and 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 debate at the time was around scope three and we don't have a hard target on scope three we have a goal on scope three which is to become net zero we have some very solid actions behind it but in keeping with this uh, theme that i mentioned earlier around if we're going to set a target quotes unquote um, we shareholders can rely upon us having thought deeply about it understanding the science behind it and um, and being able to commit sufficient resources and capital and so on to achieving that target. And right now, for some of the uh, of, of the commodities that PHP mines, there isn't a technological solution um, yet developed for our customers to be able to decarbonize their operations. And hence, it's it's one step short of of a, of a target. It is a goal. Um, but that has since been um since been kind of uh, recognized or called out by the tpi as 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 uh, under their uh, measurement um, uh, methodology as as well. but it's something that we'll you know as we learn more uh, as we engage more, we'll continue to evolve our our thinking on.
0: you've mentioned scope three a couple of times now and and you know that that's a challenge in reporting for investors and obviously also corporates, but can you talk specifically about the challenges for a global resources producer around Scope 3 emissions, particularly as we see policy policymakers, you know, looking to link Scope 3 back to producers?
1: So, look, there, there's a couple of challenges. One is, um, obviously, in the case of Scope 3, we don't include, we don't um, own the investment decision required to, um, so if there's technologies available to decarbonize downstream operations, Generally, well, the nature, very nature of scope three is that we don't have the ability to drive that investment decision. So it's about influence and, and engagement. Uh, second of all, there is no, um, uh, there's, you know, I think the world is still aligning on um, exactly how to measure and report on on scope three. So there's still different standards uh, uh, out there. Uh, and then the third and biggest one is that the technologies in certain um, supply chains are not yet uh, developed really to um Eliminate scope three, and I'll I'll use steel making as an example of that. Um, uh, the world needs a lot more steel, as I mentioned earlier. Um, and right now, it's not possible to meet all of the world's steel needs through um, green DRI. In fact, green DRI is still relatively nascent, or that's direct reduced uh, uh, iron. Uh, and the primary means of making steel globally still relies upon metallurgical coal. Um, now we've sold out of some of our coal assets in the course of the past year, including metallurgical coal. And our thinking there was that steel makers will have to decarbonize in the near term, but because they don't have a ready, um, zero carbon technology to, to, uh, deploy, uh, they're going to have to decarbonize by making their blast furnaces more efficient and less carbon intensive. One of the means of doing that is to use higher quality coconut coal, um, and, uh, and therefore, in our portfolio, what we've done is we've consolidated our coal portfolio back to the best of the best coking coals because we believe that in a decarbonizing world, or on, on 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 the path to full decarbonization, demand for those coals will go up to support steelmakers' ability to decarbonize in the short to to medium term.
0: We've had an interesting couple of weeks in uh, energy markets here in Australia, and um, the unprecedented step of the takeover of the wholesale energy market and the Energy Securities Board releasing a consultation paper that proposes a capacity mechanism to ensure sufficient energy supply. Some people have said that this has uh, raised some concerns about keeping fossil fuels in the system. Do you have a view on this? What, what's your view?
1: Um, so I'll, I'll give a broader view than just the Australian um, market because this is, you know, to, to, to some extent, similar um, debates are playing out in in Europe for for example um, we and I am on the record in saying that we believe that climate change is a urgent matter for the world to uh, address and we cannot um, end up in a situation where short-term considerations take us off path from um, you kind of decarbonizing the, the the global economy having said that it has to be gone about in a way that um, is as efficient as possible and, and creates l- l- least unintended consequences in terms of um, economic impact on the energy poor, um, on things like, as I mentioned earlier, um, water stewardship, biodiversity, and so on through the act of mining. Um, and the only way of achieving that is through well thought through policy and the various actors who are required to affect that policy coming together in a way that we're, we're, where we join hands and um and pursue a you know a, a, a common set of, of of measures. And I think one of the things we see playing out um in various dimensions is unnecessary friction because the right parties aren't coming together and working through some of these issues and figuring out how collectively we can we 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 can move uh, move forward. And you know, I mentioned earlier the the point around um mining. And if I look at the reliance that big shareholders currently have on um Service providers externally for understanding standards for assessing companies against those standards, and so on, right now that is a very fraught exercise where um, you know there what, as i said there, there are in many instances not common standards, different um, ratings agencies will rate companies uh, uh, differently against standards um, and where whereas for the markets to work in the way that we need them to work, or we being the world needs them to work. Uh, I think that the, the between capital markets, industry, and some of these service providers or ratings agencies, for example, there needs to be a means of coming together, defining clearer standards, um, uh, driving them to improve the quality of their assessments, and then all of you know everybody in the room there uh, needs to be in, uh, kind of um, encouraging fund managers to um, differentiate more significantly beca- between companies that are upholding high standards and companies that aren't. Um, because that's ultimately what's going to drive uh, uh, the right behaviour on the part of, of, uh, of sector actors.
0: I guess kind of related, Mike, um, you know, you've, you've talked a little bit about, you know, all of the resources needed for this climate transition and analysts have talked about a a resources super cycle that's, you know, related to to the climate transition and all of the infrastructure that needs to go into that. But we've also got this issue of a resources company's social licence to operate. And there's, you know, the contradiction between those two things. How seriously do you take that around the board table, around your executive team discussions? I mean, is that front and centre for you?
1: Oh, well and truly front and centre. Um, I wouldn't want to put a kind of a number on the split of, of, of time between on board discussions on this, but it would, suffice it to say it would be at least half in, t- in terms of the discussions that we have around the 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 board table, it's and and even for those things that some people might classify as business kind of uh, classic uh, business discussions, social value permeates through all of those discussions, and it's one of the things that we've tried to make a defining feature of BHP and a competitive differentiator for us. Is that for us, social value isn't something that hangs off on the side as a kind of adjacent function or or, or, or business in BHP. It is through every single investment decision that we take. It's within our capital. It's in our capital allocation framework. In fact, Caroline Cox, um, one of my my uh, uh, team, is going to be presenting to the market. I think it's in the next week or so on the latest um, our latest progress when it comes to social uh, uh, social value. So this is really front and center uh, uh, for us. Um, through the COVID uh, uh, period, we were I hope hopefully able to demonstrate that. Um, even more tangibly in the actions that we took to support communities, employees, um, including employees of others, um, who, who, were, were, you know, because other businesses had a, had an even tougher time of it, we were able to bring some of those people on in a temporary capacity. And then once the, you know, the, 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 we were past the worst of COVID, those employees moved back to the uh, prior organizations and so on. So yes, it it's really important. Um, both in terms of what we do with communities and and so on but also on the es the broader esg front as i mentioned earlier um we've you know for uh, at least a few decades in fact it was one of the things that drew me to bhp initially uh we've been very clear about our values what we stand for and then we stand behind uh, uh, behind them
0: i guess kind of kind of related and 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 certainly a big a big s issue in the esg conversation is um you know employment of Of people and, you know, in particular when we come to the Mount Arthur coal mine and and your plans to to shut that down. And we've been, I've been asked to ask a question of the, from from the CIO of Mine Super, you know, what your plans are uh, for those 2,000 odd people that are employed there?
1: So the, um, and I'll be transparent, we're still working through it. We do understand it has to be a collaborative um, uh, exercise. So we don't want a classic case where you know people um, sitting in kind of a uh, the the tower here in melbourne figure that we've got it all figured out and and this is the solution so there will be a very collaborative process it's gone through with employees ourselves government unions and and so on to figure out how we can best support um, employees now i should also note that there will be ongoing employment associated with rehabilitation which is another i don't know 15 years beyond mind uh, mind closure so it's not like all activity ceases day one. Having said that, we do intend to be very proactive in um, helping uh, workers to retrain um, for other careers, potentially elsewhere in BHP, but uh, with with other uh, companies and so on. I've found that in the Hunter Valley in particular, it's a pretty nice place to live. Um, and uh, and more often than not, people would like to remain close to the um, uh, to the hunter, uh, but we'll be we working with others to put in place the right support mechanisms to ensure that people are ready for that um, transition. It's not just employees, communities as well. We have a certain accountability to work with um, with uh, uh, local uh, uh, communities, the sh- the shire, and so on to help the community transition as well, recognising that Mount Arthur Coal does have a pretty big footprint in Musselbrook and the surrounding region.
0: So um, we've got about 15 minutes left, uh, Mike, from our allocated time. I'm going to open it up to the floor uh, to see if any of our investors have questions for you. Does anyone want to ask a question? Yes, please. Table two. Hey, Mike, it's um, Brendan Casey. I'm a consultant in Super, and thanks for your time today. It's uh, great to um, hear, your, um, hear your views, etc. I'll be uh, interested in your perspective on the um, impact of the war in Ukraine on BHP, both, I guess, generally, and also in terms of your uh, uh, movement to a more sustainable company.
1: Um, yeah, thanks for the question, Brendan. The, so, first of all, BHP didn't have any investments in either Ukraine or Russia we didn't buy anything by way of, of goods from there, and we didn't sell anything there. So the kind of that, that first-order impact on BHP has been less than it's been for some of our um, peers or, or for other um, industries. Having said that, we've seen um, what's happened in commodity markets as a result of, of, of the war in, in Ukraine. Without a doubt, we see higher inflation in the near term because of the, the increased um, uh, cost of, uh, of uh, energy. Um, and we've seen higher com- uh, prices for some of the commodities that BHP produces, like uh, coking coal, like, um, uh, well, po- we're not producing potash yet, but but we're, we've obviously got a big investment underway in potash right now. So um, it has, you know, it, it, it does flow through to higher inflation and an impact on the cost line, but one of the things that we've, uh, the ambition that we've set out for ourselves, and I think you've seen us demonstrate over a number of periods now, is to do a better job of containing the inflationary impact on the cost line than others in the in in the sector and 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 that remains our commitment um, but then in terms of the the uh you know the price outlook we're not banking upon current you know very high levels of prices continuing on ad infinitum uh generally what happens in a situation like this is you'll see a shock to the system but then the system finds a means of coping with it and moves back to a measure of uh, of uh, equilibrium, and the and the question is just how long that uh, uh, that that takes. But um, you know, I think Amanda, you mentioned earlier some talk of the 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 super cycle associated with um, metals for um, uh, renewables. Um, we're you know it's, we're we're in a cyclical industry, and uh, and 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 if there's one thing that we've learned over time is. Uh, um, the minute that people like myself start talking about a super cycle, is the, is, the, is, the, is the time when things are going to come back down again. <laughs> uh,
0: any more questions? Yes, please. Table six. Thank you, Mike. And, uh, this table has many questions, so I'll start with two. My colleague <coughs> will uh, start another one. Uh, Jing ming Chen from a uh, trustee director of Clubhouse Super. Um, my question, the first one is, uh, Australia now has a new government and China is one of your major markets. So what do you think about the future of Australia-China relationships, uh, at least in the near future? And what could Australian organizations like BHP do to support a healthy relationship? Um, second question is, what's BHP's plans to manage the tax autonomy challenge in the climate change era, especially the, uh, the European carbon tax? Border
1: okay, um, so two big questions. Um, look, so the you know question about how do we see um, the Australia-China relationship in the near future, and then what what companies like BHP could be doing uh, about that. I hope for both countries' sake that the relationship gets back onto a more constructive uh, uh, footing, because without a doubt. A stri- we would not be the country that we are today and we would not enjoy the living standard that we enjoy today, if not for the um, economic kind of miracle or growth that's occurred in China over the past uh, uh, a few decades. Uh, and the role that um, we've been able to play in that through exports of of uh, resources, as well as other um, uh, goods. And I think we do need to, to recognize that. At the same time, on the China side of things, um, I think you know it would have been much more difficult for um, that uh, growth to have been achieved without steady, secure supply and economic supply of resources from from Australia. So it's been, it has been, in both nations' interests for that um, trade relationship to be strong. That will remain the case going forward because China's China will continue to 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 grow. The other thing I would note is that if you look at the Australian economy, roughly twenty five uh, um, percent probably would be would be uh maybe thirty percent would be exports um, of those exports about half going to uh, uh to china uh, and so a fractious trade relationship there um, you know is 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 going to pose um longer term challenges to the Australian economy particularly against the backdrop of decarbonization where um, uh oil gas thermal coal, metallurgical coal over the longer term um, are, you know, are going to be a much less uh, a smaller um, part of the, of the economic pie in Australia. Uh, iron ore prices will retrace, and even the education sector may not be as, quite as strong over the long, long term here. So at a time when Australia needs to be developing alternative in- industries to uh, take up the, the slack that will be created over the long term, uh, I think it's pretty important that we have access, well, constructive relationship with our biggest, you know, with the, with the biggest, uh, with, with the biggest market. Now, what can companies like BHP be doing? One, maintaining a solid business relationship. So even through all of this period of kind of government to government tension, the business to business relationships have never been better. And even to some extent, the business to government relationships. Um, and so the, you know, that, that, uh, Kind of the day to day interactions on the business front and businesses' engagement with with uh, China has remained healthy and strong. Uh, we need to continue to focus on that uh, and finally, we need to be sharing our perspective on what's happening in the economy's perspective on the, uh, on business with both sides openly and and freely and that's something I've certainly tried to do over the past uh, year or two as as, as as we've been in some of these more difficult times. Uh, your second question was around um uh, carbon taxes and how those play out in a differential way around the world uh, and what it is that we're um doing to get ready for uh, uh, for that um probably three things to to mention here so one is um ensuring that we're part of the debate and that we're able to provide a perspective on uh how you marry up the need for um business to remain competitive and for um, the world economy to work efficiently with the concurrent need to, to decarbonize. So, you know, policy in this place, in this space has to be very thoughtful for us to do that. We have to be a credible actor. Being a credible actor means having well thought through positions and most importantly, to be seen, to be, or to be, to be taking, um, uh, action on decarbonizing our own business. And for that to be recognized, um, uh, uh uh externally um and then the third one of course is staying close to pol- the policy that's developing and figuring out what the implications are for our own portfolio where the risks are does that have implications in terms of where we want to grow where we want to deleverage in the portfolio and uh, and so on
0: scott did you have a question
1: i do mike scott tally from colonial first state um thank you for your time today Um, Building on that question on tax and there's increasing commentary around resource rent tax or super profit tax on on resource extraction, sort of a bit of a a flashback to the Henry Tax Review of 2010 or whatever, which um, had interesting consequences at the time. So there's this question about the sharing uh, between um, business and government of the revenues that come from from resources, but also with inflation and the allocation to labour and and the costs that that come to your business and the and the and the scarcity of labour at the moment. How are you thinking about those sorts of issues um, uh, from a shareholder perspective? Um, so let me address the labour one um, first. Um, so if, uh, now obviously in a in a world where um well the, the companies always have to be responsive to supply and demand that's kind of free free markets and if you've got tight labor uh, supply um you know you you pay what you need to pay to get the skills that you um uh, need um and there's no issue with that i think that the um, one of the challenges the industry has faced historically has been that uh is is the ratcheting effect so with the way that the um, industrial relations framework um, operates here uh, labor rates tend to go in one direction Uh, and the way that companies have then sought to deal with that i think has led to other unhealthy outcomes um, by way of of workforce casualization for lack of a better word because in order to stay competitive and and to uh, maintain market rates what's happened over time is the workforce has gradually become Less a directly uh, managed workforce, and more has gone to labor hire and service contractors. now you will also find that some workers prefer that flexibility, so it's not kind of a totally black and white situation, but I think that the you know the the, the way the industry is operated in times of of labor shortage has led to unintended uh, consequences now, just to help frame the the, the numbers here um, in our business, you know, for a, you know, somebody um, driving a, a truck on a uh, enterprise agreement, um, you know, all in probably between 150 and $200,000 per annum for driving one of these big trucks, uh, you would find maintainers would be a little bit above that. Um, for casualized labor or labor hire and service contractors, you might be looking at 100 to maybe 100, somewhere between $100,000 and $120,000 per, per annum. So these aren't Low numbers, um, but having said that again, I come back to the principle of, of uh, supply and demand and if uh, if demand's high and and supply is constrained for whatever reason, then we have to be um, willing to to uh, reflect that in, in in the rates now, just on the point of the workforce, coming back to the uh, earlier discussion on on social value, we did elect a number of years ago to begin addressing this point of having you know the the, the workforce having become too skewed. To less than permanent work, and so we stood up a, a uh, an, an entity called Operation Services, which is providing people with permanent work, uh, now has probably circa four thousand people in it here in Australia, so four thousand people who were previously labor hire or service contractors now with permanent jobs in operation services, and we want to take that further. so I've said that I wanted to go from thirty to forty percent of the bhp workforce in Australia who is permanent to 60 to 80% of the workforce that's permanent, and we're well on track towards that. Um, because, not just because I believe it's the right thing to do. I also believe it's going to make us a safer, more productive organization because we'll have employees there who are committed to BHP for the long term where we can invest in their training and they'll be more engaged because they'll feel that connection to the uh, company, and that has to be a good thing from a safety and and, and productivity perspective. Now, you also asked about uh, kind of resource, well, rent-seeking or 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 sharing of, of, uh, of rent amongst actors. Look, not, and you see this come with the uh, cycle. We've seen it uh, many, many times in the past. Um, It's a, it's a difficult one because um, not, you, you wouldn't be surprised to, 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 uh, to know that we think um, as a company, we already contribute quite a bit to the uh, states and, and, and nation. And if you looked at the numbers in terms of the proportion of, of government revenues that come from the resources sector, either through royalties or through corporate tax, it's astoundingly high here in 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 Australia, which I think is you know the, the more that can be done to diversify the economy over time, the better. Um, we have worked previously, you know, if I come back to the Queensland situation, which is very live, we've worked previously <laughs> with government to um, co fund um, things that will help the broader economy, like infrastructure and so on. Um, we were willing to do that this time around. In fact, we also um, uh, put forward and were, were a, a concept around working together to fund um, new uh, industries like um, technology and, and and so on. So helping with the longer term transition of the economy, but that wasn't to be. Um, and I, the, the the challenge that I think we see, and that everybody around this table should should also um, be aware of, it's actually two challenges. One is by not having stable fiscal policy and the terms being able to be changed on a whim, uh, it makes it very hard for companies like us to make big investments. Um, I contrast that with Canada, where um, the the government there has been very welcoming of mining investment, has gone out of their way to uh, kind of draw us us there. In fact, has co-funded a little bit of the investment in in potash and knocked back a proposed uh, royalty increase well, not surprising then that we're investing 7.5 billion dollars in a Canadian Canadian dollars, a 5.7 billion U.S. Canadian potash project because we've got greater confidence about the uh, terms of of the the, the investment uh, a longer term there. Where, given what we now know, it would be almost impossible for us to make any major investment in Queensland in the uh, uh, near term because we wouldn't know what our returns are going to be. Um, and by the way, the, the the Queensland was already the highest, but they are kind of totally out of the ballpark now in terms of the you know between corporate tax and royalty rates, well and truly uh, higher than any other jurisdiction in the in 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 the world. Um, so that's one challenge. Second challenge is that many of the of your clients, you um, know, notwithstanding the, the the statements that have been made about this isn't going to impact Queenslanders and it's just foreign shareholders and so on. That's not the reality. Uh, the revenue raising um, within queensland will mainly flow to the other states because of the horizontal fiscal e- equalization mechanism in in australia uh, but shareholders are going to feel this directly in terms of lower share price reduced dividends and so on less so i mean because we're a big company and we've got other other businesses the the effect is 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 more muted but if you're a shareholder in a junior company um a queensland shareholder in a junior uh, coal company for example Yep, you look at what happened yesterday with share prices, and and they'll definitely be be feeling that. So the um, downside impact is not small um, for 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 shareholders, uh, and I would argue that the um, positive impact in terms of the amount of the revenue that gets retained is probably not quite as high as it might appear at the headline level.
0: Mike, we're just about out of time, but I, uh, I spoke to my father this morning and told him that I was. Stepping in for Fiona and having a chat with you today, he's been an investor in uh, BHP for more than 40 years. And I said, what, what do you want me to ask Mike? And he said, um, is the current dividend policy going to continue? <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed, um, <laughs> it will. And I, and I hope that shareholders have seen the benefit of that dividend policy in, 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 in recent years, which kind of puts the talks under the wheels with the 50% minimum. Um, but in the clarity we provided around the capital allocation framework, um, it kind of drives us towards, you know, a, a, a certain set of outcomes for, for, for shareholders. And um, you know, long may the, uh, um, the, the good times last.
0: Mike, you've been extremely generous with your time and, and your information. Thank you so much for sharing your plans and, and best of luck. Uh, please thank Mike Henry.
1: Thank you so much.